Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Elizabeth Moss, from The West Wing and Mad Men, to Handmaid's Tale, and Shining Girls. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. We've got another new guest to the pod this week, someone we've wanted to have on for so long. You know her, you love her. It's Elizabeth Moss. Uh... One of the best actors working today. I'm a little, I, I'm a little on my back foot here in the introduction, guys, and I'm going to tell you why. Because chances are Elizabeth Moss is listening to me do this introduction. Now that's not always the case. I don't know. Maybe some guests listen to the podcast before they're on the show. They play it cool. Sometimes they tell me about it. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes maybe they'll listen afterwards. Often they probably won't. They do a lot of podcasts. Well. I heard through the grapevine a while back that Elizabeth Moss was a fan of Happy, Sad, Confused. Blew my mind, as you would expect it to. I mean, I take nothing for granted. I know we've got a, a core devoted audience out there, but Elizabeth Moss is a busy young woman with a lot on her plate. Um, and the fact that uh, I'd heard that she was a fan of the show uh, meant a lot to me. And sure enough, when we finally connected recently, a couple weeks back, for this conversation, and you'll hear it, it was very much a mutual admiration society. Now, I'd interviewed her a couple times um, at some film festivals and silly award shows, um, but obviously nothing like this. So it was it was a long time coming, and I hope it lived up to her expectations, um, because, you know, when you know someone is excited to do something, you know, I assume, generally speaking, that most people coming on the show are contractually obligated. I'm being semi-facetious, but they're, you know, they're, it's work. It's work. So the fact that um, Lizzie Moss, as she goes by, uh, was excited to be on the show and was not shy about professing her excitement um, was cool and a little bit intimidating in a way. But I think I think we all came out of this okay. I think we're all friends, everyone here, and uh, it was a great conversation with someone who clearly has good taste beyond podcasts. She knows and loves movies and TV. Uh, as evidenced by her phenomenal body of work. And we cover a lot of it in this conversation. I mean, Elizabeth Moss has been acting since a very young age. Um, and perhaps early on, you first saw her in stuff like The West Wing. And then, of course, Mad Men changed her whole career and really um, brought new attention and new opportunities to her. And then in the last, you know, five, ten years, like just to see her really to make the most of it and work in a lot of cool independent films um, to help um, steer the ship now of Handmaid's Tale, not only be the lead actor, but also an executive producer and direct on that show. Um, and now also directing and executive producing on a new, very cool show for Apple TV Plus called Shining Girls. Uh, this is a series based on a book that is... You know, it's an intense piece of work, uh, and it's a cool, it's a, like kind of a genre-bending piece of work. Sci-fi elements to it that kind of sneak up on you. Um, uh, Lizzie plays a woman who has suffered some trauma and is certainly dealing with that. And meanwhile, we have what, you know, I don't think, it's, I don't think it ruins anything to say it, because I think she even mentions it. There, there is a time travel element to this. Um, involving the uh, an antagonist in the story, so it's a bit of a mystery. It's a bit, but you know, it's it, it's it's more than genre. It's really a, a great character study, as a lot of her work is, and um, it is well worth your time. It debuts on Apple TV Plus on, if I have this right, yeah, April 29th. So coming soon at you, uh, Shining Girls. Check it out. Um, but this conversation is great. Beyond the career stuff, we also get into comfort movies, uh, which uh, I laugh at because um, she wanted to talk about one comfort movie that um, had already been taken by a previous guest. Um, whether you guys know it or not, I try to like, I, I always ask the new guest not to pick a previous comfort movie pick, um, just to mix it up a bit and make it fresh. At some point, I'll probably relax that a bit. But um, she took it seriously and, and chose something else. So you'll, you'll hear all of that. Um, other stuff to mention. Well, if you're hearing this on like Tuesday or Wednesday this week, or even Thursday, and you're in New York City, there is still time to get tickets for April 21st, Thursday evening, uh, 8 p.m. in New York City. I'm doing a live edition of Happy, Sad, Confused at the 92nd Street Y with Alexander Skarsgård for his new film, The Northman. You've heard me talk about it in, in past weeks. I, I've since now seen it a second time. 
this is a great movie. This is just a great, great movie from Robert Eggers, director of The Witch and The Lighthouse, and is a big Viking revenge story. Features a great central performance from Alexander, but also uh, Nicole Kidman's in it, Ethan Hawke, Willem Dafoe, Anya Taylor-Joy, um, and, and just like from a filmmaking perspective, Eggers, who has a production design background, really knows what he's doing, and I'm so impressed with, I mean, this this movie is a big leap in terms of budget for him, and it's all on the screen, and uh, yeah, well worth your time. So, all of which is to say, if you're in New York City, um, come on out. Uh, it would, it's going to be a fun time. Live, an hour-long conversation between me and Alexander, which is following a screening of The Northman. Um, as always, I'll put all the informa- information in the show notes, pick up your tickets now, and I hope to see some of you guys out there. I think that's all the housekeeping for this week. Let's get right to the conversation. Uh, This is for you guys, but really, Lizzie Moss, if you're listening to this, this is for you. This is about making your dreams come true. I hope this was satisfying for you. Listeners out there, here is the momentous podcast, finally at hand, Josh Horowitz and Elizabeth Moss. Guys, I'm very nervous. Lizzie Moss. Can I call you Lizzie? Everybody calls you Lizzie. I don't know you that well, but you are Elizabeth Moss. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so, so much. Yes, you can definitely call me Lizzie. And I'm beyond excited to be here. And you have to know that this is my absolute favorite podcast that I, to the point of like a weird, a weird (laughs) level, have, uh, (laughs) have been listening obsessively for quite a while <clears throat> and she's getting choked up guys she's getting I, emotional about <laughs> yes i'm getting emotional um and i i i just i truly i love this show and i'm so excited to do it and i i really feel like you, what you're doing is so fantastic and it's such an incredible and hard to achieve combination of something fun and entertaining but also intelligent and educational and you're speaking to these incredible filmmakers and actors and it just I truly have like I've been obsessively listening so I'll, I'll stop there before no I no 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 it's good, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well if you've, if you've listened to me as much as you say you will know that you probably guess that I'm not good at receiving compliments but that is truly um makes me somewhat emotional it makes me realize I have human a human heart and um I don't even know what to say except right back at you i don't know that will come, that will come out in the, in the course of the next 45 minutes of how much of a fan i am of yours but um look uh, as you can tell i love this shit i love talking about movies and tv uh, with great artists so this is uh this is the fun stuff you know well, you can really, you can really tell, you know, you can really tell, you know what you're talking about, but you also keep it fun. And it's, uh, it's just, it's a joy to listen to you. So oh my God. I, I know we've been trying to do this for a while yeah. and I'm excited that we finally got to. Well, your, your, your latest uh, comedic extravaganza, Shining Girls has given us a good excuse. Uh, great news. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great new series on Apple TV plus. We're going to get to that, but we have a lot to cover. Um, first of all, I want you to know, I, I went the extra mile on research today. I didn't go to just the Wikipedia page and just to the IMDb <laughs> page. I went to a source. I went to a close source and I said, what makes Lizzie Moss tick? What do I need to know? Oh, how what, intriguing. Here's what I've learned. This is not that insightful. I mean, but blame, <laughs> but, but, but blame the source, not me. Downton Abbey, fair to say it's an obsession. Fair to say it's a preoccupation. I'm currently on a rewatch and I'm on season five. So yes. Okay. And uh, the only other nugget I got is that you may have seen The Last Dance more than once. Which Who I- have you been talking to? I'm so intrigued because this is such up-to-date information. <laughs> it might it's- Someone might be in your vicinity uh, as you shoot a show right now. Someone who, who you've lovingly photographed uh, their, their delicious eyebrows and other uh, body I parts. I knew it. I knew it. As soon as you said The Last Dance, I was like, ah, oh, it's Max. It's definitely Max. Um, yes. Max Minghella ratted you out. Uh, but these are good things. Downton Abbey. I mean, that's a, you must be psyched for the new film. We're, we're weeks away. 
Very, very excited. Um, I find it a, I know we have a comfort film to talk about, but I yeah. definitely find it a comfort television show. Um, and then the last dance, I mean, I'll keep it brief because, you know, although I've requested three hours with you, I think we're only doing certain the First of now. many, let's not overstate <laughs> either of ours welcome yet so far, yeah. This is a three-parter, I, yeah, I assume. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the last dance, I, I'm on my third rewatch of that. And here's the thing. I'm not even a basketball fan. I'm a, a sports fan, but I'm more baseball. And I don't know a lot about basketball, but uh, Michael, this, this documentary and, and Michael Jordan has become a hero for me as it, super late in life. He, you know, obviously everyone's been on this tip for a while. Uh, I came to it a little later. Um, Guys, but I have just you heard about this Michael Jordan guy. <laughs> uh, he's kind of um, good. He's kind of a really great sportsman. <laughs> sportsman um, yeah. <laughs> I just find that obviously the documentary is so well-made and so just genius the way that they crafted each episode to kind of build upon the last, but, and going back and forth between the two, the two timelines, but, I, but MJ is just obviously incredibly, incredibly inspiring. And uh, although what he does is very different than, than what I do, there are definitely times when I need a little bit of inspiration. I need a little bit of um, you can do it. You can get up, you can get out of bed, you can keep going. And I, I find the documentary very inspiring. You, you both stick your tongues out when you're in the middle of a great scene or a great moment. <laughs> That's just an affectation. <laughs> so true. That's really the only thing Michael Jordan and I have in common. Yes. Well, okay. Here, here, and my biceps are very, obviously, obviously that yeah. knows that. <laughs> what is, and why is your production company Love and Squalor? Is this a literary reference that is smarter than me? Is this like Jane Austen that I don't know? What is it? No, probably not. Um, I, I am a Salinger fan. Uh, and uh, Nine Stories is my favorite book. Two Eyes Made with Love and Squalor is one of my favorite stories. You know, Lindsay, my producing partner and I, we went back and forth and, and we tried for a very long time to come up with a name and it was really hard. And we were like, both of our initials are the same LM, Lindsay McManus, Lizzie Moss. And, and we were like, there's gotta be something in there. We're both Leos. We, you know, we were like, come on, there's something we can do with like astrology or something. And we just couldn't come up with anything. And then finally one day we were talking and I was like, hey, what about something with Salinger? Like, you know, love and squalor or something. And she was like, I love that. That's great. And I was like, okay. And I think for us, it kind of represent, we do have a very big, like literary hold on our company. We have, we, we do like to purchase and develop books and stuff. So um, it kind of came from that. It felt appropriate, but also it just felt like it described sort of the two sides of the company that we we don't do just one kind of project we don't just do comedy or drama we really do have a very very kind of uh diverse slate and so yeah. it felt like it kind of it also just sounded cool i don't know no no totally <laughs> and i don't know if it's it's you or your partner running the account but you can tell you guys have good taste because it's got a fair amount of like david lynch and albert brooks and oscar isaac and these are like it's like totally. my mount, mount rushmore of of cool dudes basically oh. Totally, totally. That's that's Emma who works in our company. Uh, she runs our account. She's she's younger, so she understands the social media. Um, <laughs> if you call it, if you add the the to it and not just social media, that means that you and I are of an age. You don't get it. You don't get it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. So, okay. So let's, because uh, there is a lot to cover. And as you know, often we do a little autobiographical uh, talk here. Uh, let's go back. Okay. Your parents, as I understand it, uh, artistically inclined, fair to say, musicians. Oh my God, that, is that an alien that's a tentacle <laughs> at you? Uh, oh, there's a xenomorph next. <laughs> or I have a tail. <laughs> this is Ethel who joins all my Zooms. I love so, it. I love yeah. it. Ethel is welcome. Um, yeah. Lucy, my dog, might join us as well. Um, you know, so, my other cat's name is Lucy. Oh, okay. So, so what kind of, um, were movies, pop culture, a big part of your childhood what were you raised on um I wasn't raised really or on the pop culture of the of the time um it took me a long time to come around to you know my late teens early 20s to really and I didn't know who Nirvana was even though I was obviously of age at a time when that was a very big deal um Radiohead was kind of the first time in my mid teens that I was like, oh, this is a band that's currently playing uh, that I can go see. These people are alive. Um, for me growing up, it was, I, I could, it was all Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday. Um, it was all jazz and blues and classical. Um, classical because of ballet and jazz and blues because of my parents. So I could recite by, you know, 
verbatim any Gershwin tune uh, at 11 years old, if you ask me to, but I would not know who the current pop person was. Uh, I'm still not very good at pop culture. Like I still, you know, I was looking at like the Grammys last night oh. and I was, yeah, I, I, I don't, I, who are these people? I, I MTV still pays a lot of my bills and I was watching the Grammys and I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I can't tweet anything because I'll just sound like a 90 year old man. Like, who are these people? <laughs> you know, I was like, <laughs> I was literally looking online. I was like, who won Ben's jazz vocal album? Like, (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. know, So I'm still not um, very up on pop culture, which any of my friends will, will tell you. But yeah, that was my, um, that was my trajectory when I was, when I was younger. And what about, how did film and TV enter the fray? Like who were the first actors or films that you became preoccupied with? So that's a very good question. So, um, which I'm not surprised. Um, so for me, musicals when I was younger were definitely the thing. Uh, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, um, Gene Kelly, um, anything anything that was um, you know, West Side Story, you know, My Fair Lady, there was all of those sort of big MGM musicals. Um, and then it kind of transitioned into uh, Betty Davis, Barbara Stanwyck, um, went down that road. And then when I got into an age where I could drive, cause I grew up in LA, right. I discovered revival houses and I started to go by myself all the time. Almost every single day I went through this period when I, when I got a car and could drive uh, when I was like 16, that I, I would go to revival houses almost every single day, the new Beverly LACMA, um, you know, the silent movie theater. Like I, and, and so I, then I, that's when I saw Fellini and Truffaut sure. and, and that's when I was like, Ooh, this is real cinema. Uh, and got that kind of education. So uh, television wise for me, um, the wonder years. Yeah. The wonder years was the first show. I really remember watching, feeling such a deep connection to. And in my opinion, I mean, I, there are a lot of great shows that, that have started this golden age of television, but I think the wonder years was the one that really kind of was doing something way before anybody else was, was doing it. Right. Yeah. It felt like it was aspiring to something more, at least it was like, it was, there was that base level of kind of just like going through the motions of most sitcoms. And this was obviously single camera and the narration and the music. It was all just a step above. Yeah. Yeah. And it was funny, but it was also heartbreaking. And it's, you know, I think it really, it set me up for, Oh my God, this is what television can be. And then the other one was my so-called life. Which yeah. right, which changed the game for me. I was a little younger than than Claire Danes when she did that, but I was close enough that I could imagine what she was going through. And for me as an actor, that was the first time that I had ever seen someone do that on television. Yeah. So that fractured, vulnerable, complicated performance that she did. And it, it, it truly was probably what set me off. I was like, oh, you can do that on TV. Cool. So talk to me about the stuff though, that you're doing early on, because obviously you're acting pretty early on. And like, you look at the IMDb, it goes all the way back pretty much. And (laughs) some of the stuff though, I mean, look, obviously as you progress, it gets more sophisticated and more interesting as is the case for children and two adults. I mean, like suburban commando with all due respect, is not uh <laughs> Matt, Matt. oh no she's affected she, this is it <laughs> so i guess my sense is like in those, Leave meeting <laughs> in those early gigs were you just kind of like happy to be at the party did you have judgment about what you were doing or, or what no i was completely happy to be at the party i had no control over what i was doing um was so happy just to get a job, uh, was so, you know, going on auditions and so happy to, to be doing anything. I, there was no choice, you know, in the matter necessarily. Yeah. Um, it, it really, for a long time, honestly, yeah. I think, I think it wasn't until after really, I guess, kind of starting with the West Wing and then really after Mad Men that I was like, got more choosy. Um, but you know, I was just taking what I could get. But I would imagine there are like, if you, again, if you look at the resume, there are some instances even early on around West Wing or prior where you get a chance to work with some like really esteemed, especially actresses, frankly. Like, I remember I haven't seen it for decades, but A Thousand Acres had like this amazing cast of actresses. I think you were Michelle Pfeiffer's daughter in that, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, yeah, me and Michelle Williams 
we were remember we were we were both she was 14 and I was 12 isn't that crazy that is crazy that is crazy and then just a couple years later girl interrupted which obviously has this great ensemble I mean was did those stand out am I am I citing some that stand out as slightly special experiences given the actor given the company of actors or no for sure. For sure. I mean, I definitely did. I didn't have a lot of choice in what I did as far as I, 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 I wanted to be working and I wanted to, um, get jobs, but I, I will say that I, I wasn't cut out for things that of a certain ilk, I was more, um, likely to get something like girl interrupted. I was more likely to get something like West wing or, you know, because I just wasn't, I wasn't a cookie cutter actor. I wasn't somebody who, I wasn't bubbly. I wasn't um, a goth girl. You know, I didn't fit into any sort of like box that you kind of tend to try to fit into as a teenager and and a teenage actor. Um, I just was kind of weird and did these like kind of weird performances. And so I, I, I did sort of slot into, you're right, like certain films or certain projects that ended up being um, more interesting, perhaps. Did, was West Wing clearly just a prestige kind of show from the start? I mean, you step on that onto that set and you're working opposite, obviously, Martin Sheen and just the way it's shot. And I would imagine you feel the difference. Absolutely. And, and to the point of where, and obviously I, I'm very, very close with Brad Whitford now and am his boss, which I reminded him of all the time. <laughs> um, and we've talked about it a lot now, 20 years later, but and he corroborates my my story that that the feeling was that it was way too highbrow and too intelligent at the time you know now we're we look back and go well of course it would have been successful but at the time it was yes shot in a really interesting way directed in an interesting way obviously Aaron Sorkin's writing it was incredibly fast it was very very smart it had all of these actors that were these accomplished theater actors and some movie stars like Martin and Rob Lowe and stuff but you know but but really were actor actors you know and and there was definitely a feeling that it wasn't gonna maybe maybe wasn't gonna make it and it wasn't very it didn't hit right away so so yeah and, where, and so where were you at? I know we're, we're jumping around quickly because we don't have the three hours that you promised me, but where were you at like headspace wise, career wise when Mad Men came around? Again, you were talking about earlier on about like not fitting into any box, uh, so to speak. Did you yeah. feel a comfort in where you were headed? Did you know what you wanted? Um, yeah, um, take me back to that time. Yeah. So I was living in New York. I did the opposite of what you're supposed to do. And I I grew up in LA and you're supposed to stay in LA and do pilot season and auditions and stuff. And when I was 18, I moved to New York and started doing theater um, and independent films. And so I was existing in a a space. I was 23. Um, I was on and off the West Wing, but I hadn't really done a lot of the West Wing at that like recent, but that was like the last season of the West Wing. Sure. And I'd only done one episode that final season, I think. So it wasn't like a regular gig for me anymore. And um, I was living in New York and I definitely wasn't, you know, super financially stable. <laughs> and and uh, there, there were these, there, there was this pilot, um, Mad Men and everybody in New York, all the actors were sort of buzzing about it because it was so good, but it was also on this network that nobody had ever heard of. And everybody kept calling it A&E. And the, the only thing it had in was of advertising in the sixties, like how boring could that be? And then at the time, everybody thought that. And then the only thing that had interesting for it was Matt Weiner. And it was like, oh, well he did the Soprano. So that's cool. Um, so it was, it was one of those things where it was one of the best scripts anyone had ever read that pilot. Um, I'd never done a pilot before. It was my first pilot. Oh, wow. And yeah. And so we shot it for two weeks in New York and it was really fun and it felt special, but then that was it. And you just didn't know. We shot it in April and we didn't get picked up till August. And it was two, two weeks in April. Um, and then I went back to my, my summer in New York, you know, and, and turned 24. Um, so I was a, a sort of semi-struggling actor living in New York. So when you look back now at what the eight, nine years uh, of that show, 
do you see, like, if you, if you happen upon various episodes, are you seeing more of Peggy's progression or more of Lizzie's progression as an actor? Like what strikes you when you see season one versus season eight of that show? Um, I definitely see both, you know, because they're so intrinsically linked. Um, you know, when you have a season or when you have a show that goes nine years, I went from 23 to 32. So that's a lot of life that you live. It's a lot of growing up that you do. And I can't separate the two, honestly. Uh, I see episodes and I know where I was in my life and I I can't separate the two of them. I think the thing that I see, if I really go back to like season one is um, there's like a, I definitely think I've become hopefully, I don't know if I want to use the word better, but um, a deeper actor since then. I've heard of more complicated actor since then. And I can definitely tell that, okay, that's me at 23. Like that's a performance that is, I I think certainly good, but um, I should hope in the last, you know, whatever amount of years I've deepened my, my, my skills. So I look back at that first season and just see a kind of, um, I don't know, a simplicity that is, but the simplicity that worked for that character at that time, it wouldn't have, you know, it couldn't have been any other way. So me now couldn't play that character. I'm curious, like, so we talk about like stuff like the West Wing and Mad Men, which were clearly the the longest running gigs at at that point in your career. And then we flash forward to the the recent stuff you've been doing where you're producing and you're directing your own projects, your own TV projects, which isn't necessarily the norm, especially the directing part. Talk to me about like how those experiences, whether it's just those those two shows specifically or others, have informed how you want a set run now that you get a chance to decide how a set is run. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's sort of two things that informed that uh, as an actor or as number one on the call sheet. Um, and then of course, as a, a executive producer as well, West Wing taught me how a set should be. Um, I wasn't a producer on that. I was in and out. So I wasn't involved so much in the behind the scenes machinations. Um, There was a lot going on that I didn't know about, but I just knew what it was like on set. And it was this group of incredibly professional, talented people who knew their lines, who came to work on time, who had fun while they were doing it, were hilarious. There was an incredibly fun atmosphere. Everyone was very nice to everybody, uh, you know, no matter who you were on the crew, um, everyone was really respectful and nice. And that's what taught, I, that was my first experience on a show like that. And I, and I thought, oh, this is what it's like. So yeah. this, that was it. And then moving, moving forward from, from we, and we kept that up on Mad Men and obviously on Handmaids and the directing part um, for me was very much. Uh, top of the lake. I was I was very influenced by working with Jane and Jane Campion, of course. Yeah. Yes, yes, the great Jane Campion, Oscar-winning um, director, has a blade. Exactly, exactly. Bravo. Um, she creates an atmosphere on set that is um, something that I strive for every time I'm I'm acting or directing, but especially directing. She, it's it's so safe for the actors. It's what that is exactly why she gets such good performances out of every single actor she works with. She creates an environment where the performance comes first, nothing else matters. Even if you're behind, even if something has gone disastrously wrong, you wouldn't know it. Like she just, you, you won't rush that rehearsal. You won't rush that blocking. You won't, you'll, you'll do as many takes as you need to do. And, and it's just this lovely, lovely, safe, calm environment. And um, I, I absorbed that by osmosis because um, it was way before I ever thought I would direct. And, and now I, tr- I, try to, I try to do it. I try to do it every day. Just because you buttered me up doesn't mean I'm not going to deliver the hard hitting questions because one, <laughs> one, and I don't know if this is, I mean, you say uh, obviously beautiful things about Jane, you were supposed to be in power of the dog. Is that, mm-hmm. and, and is that, is that tough for you to, I know scheduling stuff, I think it was handmaids related probably with the pandemic as well, of course, was it tough to finally see that and be like, Oh, <laughs> Absolutely. Of course. It was very, very tough. Of course. I mean, it's, I've had a, I've had a kind of few of those, to be honest. Um, (laughs) And uh, it's always scheduling and, you know, 
when you have a day job like handmaids, it takes up a lot of time and it's really hard to sometimes do other things. Um, that was a really tough one though, because of my relationship with Jane and I had actually been involved or speaking to her about the project for quite a while, a couple of years before I wasn't able to do it. Um, and we, but we tried and we tried and we tried. We, I, I, I know that we all tried. And I, I mean, on the handmaid's side and on their side, I, I know that we tried, we all tried so hard. It just became impossible yeah. um, for me to be able to do both and be in two places at the same time. Um, but yeah, but at the same time, you know, I think, when I think that I have so much respect for Kirsten Dunst, she's one of my favorite actors. So if I think if if somebody had done it that I didn't love, it didn't respect, sure. I would have been really pissed. Sure. But I was like, okay, good. At least like somebody is taking care of that role. Somebody is going to do an incredible job. Obviously, she did, and so that's the best case scenario in this. And and I, I you know I I hope that I'll get to work with Jane again. It's <laughs> funny because you know you talk about like that stuff happens all the time, whether people hear about it in the press or not. And it's almost impossible to line up all the ships in the right way, especially when you have like a very busy day job. I mean, and frankly, what struck me when I was looking at like the Mad Men years is how much great work you were actually able to do while mm-hmm. you were doing Mad Men, because I've talked to so many actors where it's like that great opportunity sucks them out of the universe for like 10 years. And like, mm-hmm. you look at what the stuff you got to do, it's very varied. You do a bunch of theater, uh, Speed the Plow, you do Children's Hour in the West End. You get into the Greek, you get this Alex Ross Perry relationship going through three different films, uh, Walter Salas on the road. So like, did it feel like, again, like we talked early on, like at first as an actor, you're just taking what's available. Then you're starting to get a little bit of the luxury of choice. Like, did you feel during the Mad Men years, you were able to steer your own ship and pursue the kind of filmmakers and the kind of projects you wanted? Or was that the list of things I just said, like amazing luck? kind of probably a bit of both um I definitely am more I'm in more of a position now where I'm able to um have these opportunities and you know whether or not I end up getting to to do them or not um there's you know I get to talk to filmmakers that I'm obviously huge huge fan of then it was a little bit of both it was like it was like oh there's this play that's what I want to do. That sounds great. I'm going to go do that. But then also there's something like get him to the Greek, which was just came to me. And I was like, cool. Like that sounds like a very fun experience to be a part of. Um, the thing that really uh, changed for me, the sort of the, the way things were going was top of the lake within Mad Men. Um, because I shot that first season. I, I don't remember if it was after season four or five of, of Mad Men, maybe four. And it was so different from Peggy and it was so different from, from Mad Men. And, and I, I think I wasn't quite sure if people, if, if, if people were going to let me do something else because Peggy had become quite popular right. and, and, and I wasn't sure if I could really do something else. And Jane saw not to make this like a, you know, this is like a, podcast but she is a huge part of my life and career and she believed in me and she thought I could do it and she saw something and it was that that really kind of changed the trajectory because I think it allowed me to see and it allowed other people to see that there was um these were the kind of projects that I wanted to do and these were the kind of people I wanted to work with and I wasn't just going to be doing Mad Men and that was the end of that or or move on to another show and that was all I was going to do I wanted to diversify my career and um sounds so businesslike no but i mean it's also rewarding you're i mean you're you're engaging different parts of your you know your artistic pursuits and and that leads me to handmaids which is like i'm curious obviously that show as it's progressed your involvement in other facets of it have progressed too, becoming an executive producer and directing more and more was that something that kind of organically happened or on day one of handmaids were you like if this goes right i'd love to have more of a say in all aspects of it it was extremely organic, which I think is the best way. Um, the first season I was a producer and even that, which, you know, in TV, it just for the people listening, like a producer in TV is lower than an executive producer. And then nonsensically in film, it's the other way around. Right. Um, nobody knows why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was a producer on the first season. I remember having a conversation with them about that and saying, 
they offered it to me. And I said, okay. I said, but just so you know, like, if that's going to happen, I really want to be a producer. I don't want to just, I don't want it to just be a title. And they were like, okay. And then I really, really was that first season, you know, helping to hire Reed Morano, helping to cast. I really was involved and Bruce Miller and Warren really involved me. And then I got this call when I was driving in LA from Warren Littlefield. And he said, this was before season two. And he said, just so you know, I just got a phone with MGM and we're promoting you to executive producer because we feel that that's the job that you're actually doing. And I was like, oh my God, Warren Littlefield. <laughs> like, what a show of incredible support. I love that man so much. Um, He's like the most it, notable alum from my like forgettable college. It was like when I went to Hobart really? College in upstate New York, it was always like Warren Littlefield and Christopher McDonald from Happy Gilmore. Those are our oh two big alums. God. <laughs> that is so funny oh wow yeah, well that is i derailed you yeah anyway but he's a good no, guy yes great footsteps to follow in he is very much a wonderful human um anyway so then i started being an ep um the director thing came about kind of because the thing that we do on the show that i think is unique that I like to do on other things now though, is the relationship between me as the lead actor, the cinematographer and the director is very, very, very close. So we started to sit down and do page turns of every single episode with the director and the DP. And we would just talk about shots and we would talk about blocking and we'd talk about story and, um, the DP being, being there, I suppose, was one of the things that was a little bit more unusual, right. but we just felt like it was essential to have the person who was photographing it to be aware of what the story was and what the scene was about. So because of that, and I did that with, you know, Mike Barker and Dana Reed and these directors, Darbla Walsh, these directors that I came, were coming around, I admire so much. I started to kind of think more like a director and, and, and be thinking about it from that point of view. So the transition into directing was very, very organic because I just felt like I knew this story really well and I was very, very close to it. And I was very close to all the elements of the show. And it just seemed like something that, well, I, well, I wanna try to tell this story now. Um, so it was, it was a very, a very organic process. And that leads us to Shining Girls, which, okay. So this is the new series for Apple TV Plus. Um, it's, Features you as an executive producer and a director. How many episodes did you direct of this one then? Two. Two. Okay. So talk to me about sort of how this one was in development for a while. I, I know um, it's an interesting look. I've seen the first four episodes. Excellent work from all. I mean, never trust Jamie Bell as sweet as he seems off camera. <laughs> never trust the guy that pulls like the wings off a bee. This is the lesson <laughs> for the audience out there. But it, look, it's a show. I mean, arguably, you tell me what the show thematically is about. I don't want to tell you what I think it is. I mean, you're the you're the EP. What what is the show about for you? No, I, I I want to hear what you think it's about. Um, for me, what I what it attracted me to it in the first place was I felt like I, first of all, I love kind of high concept stuff. Um, I love sci-fi. I love horror, uh, action. We can talk about that ad nauseum. That'll be part two. Um, but I I was very attracted to this sort of idea of this time traveling serial killer and then she had Silco the writer and obviously based on the book had sort of Trojan horsed this metaphor for trauma into it right. and I love that as well I mean that's why I love sci-fi and that's why I love horror because that's all it is right yeah. is there is you're taking a deeper issue and you're putting it in this genre um so i i loved the concept of, of that and i thought it was done so well and i also thought it was just tonally very different from handmaids and i read it during season three of handmaids and i was looking for something different i certainly wasn't looking to do necessarily another show but i wanted something that was entertaining that was cliffhangery that had a kind of fun side to it if you if you can call it fun um so yeah I just felt like it was really different I think the show is incredibly challenging I think it is in quite intentionally not going to be the clearest thing you've ever watched you know it takes a second to yeah develop what it is that's happening well even the, the genre stuff you're talking about it's like yes. wait is this a genre and it's like it took my wife and i a second to be like oh this is 
this is sci-fi. <laughs> okay. Totally. totally. It, and it's just, it's, it is when we were figuring out how to market the show, it was really interesting the conversations because we were like, this doesn't fit in any genre like yeah. this. We, we can't market this as a, as a serial killer show. We can't market it as a, as a science fiction or horror or thriller because it doesn't actually fit into any genre. And then we realized, oh, that's its virtue. Yeah. That's what we, that's what we actually embrace. That's what we love about it. That's its great. It's asset. It isn't like anything else you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, so we decided to sort of lean into that. Is there any connections to be made that anything useful out of the experience of Invisible Man, which in some ways dealt with trauma, abuse of different sorts? Um, is there something from there that you can carry on to this one or is it apples and oranges for you? Um, I feel like, I mean, <laughs> we could we could sort of try to analyze and unpack the the career that I seem to have developed, which is, which is very, very focused on women going through traumatic experiences. Right. And it is of no design of mine. Um, but uh, my joke is just don't ever give me a child in a story because I will probably lose her. Like <laughs> it's going to get taken away or I'll lose her in the woods yep. or something. Like I just can't seem to hang on to my children in these, in these projects. Um, I, 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 I think it's, for me, apples and oranges in the sense of, I don't know, I feel like Invisible Man, the tone is so, the tone is so different of that film. You must take a certain pride that that was, I think, the last, um, quote unquote, original theatrical film ever to succeed at the box office before the end of the world. <laughs> like, I mean, like, I, I'm being somewhat facetious, but I feel like that was the last one that we'll see for a while that's not attached to Marvel or DC or Star Wars or some kind of genre property. Obviously, it's, it's genre. It's invisible, uh, man. But it's not. It's a seven million dollar movie. I mean, exactly. Exactly. No, I, I, it's a very strange distinction. I remember talking to Lee a little while after the shutdown and we just had this whole conversation about like, can you believe this is the this is this is the distinction of the film is that it was the last movie people saw in in the theaters yeah. and the last normal movie going experience that wasn't judged or based on post pandemic you know feelings um very very it's very very strange i i live on the upper west side of new york and um there the visible man poster was up for like six months. Oh, I know that was that stuff. That was the freakiest <laughs> stuff. That was like the I am legend stuff where like, yeah, I live close by you apparently. Cause like, yeah, going by Times Square occasionally and seeing like stuff from like nine months ago. It was like, oh God, it's the end of days. I know, I know. <laughs> or the greatest marketing campaign by Universal ever done. I'm like, wow, they really got their money's worth with that poster. <laughs> Is there any talk lately of, uh, of another story from Lee and you? Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to work with Lee again, um, for sure. I had such an incredible experience working with him, and he's such a great writer, too. Um, so I, I definitely want to find something else with him. Um, and, you know, we're trying to, you know, I guess it's not between us if I say it on this podcast, but <laughs> I was about to say between us. <laughs> uh, you know, we're trying to kind of crack the nut of a sequel um, and figure and figure that out. I think there's more story to be told there. Um but of course, the first one was, in my opinion, pretty great. And, you know, with any sequel, you really want to make sure yeah. you know exactly what you're doing and you're doing it right. So, well, it's a good sign that you guys, I mean, frankly, Universal must have been like, again, based on it's probably the most profitable movie they've made since, you know, Jordan's films, frankly. So, like, um, uh, it speaks volumes that you've waited a second to like crack it in the right way as opposed to like green light it and just jump right back in. No, completely, because there's, you, you don't want to mess that up. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, and it's people actually really um, not the thing about that film. That's so great that I love is that it is totally a genre film. It's completely entertaining. It's scary, all of that stuff. But what, what me and our, and our cinematographer as well did with it is it's a great movie. It's actually just oh, yeah. a good movie and it looks great and everything, especially as you said, for $7 million. And so we, for me, I don't need to do a sequel, but I would want to, if I did, I would, I would, we need to capture that magic again, you yeah. know? All right. So let's talk. This is a controversial subject. As I gather, you had a comfort movie in mind. You have a bone to pick. I, so what I've been doing is not, I, people might, might, might not know this. I ask folks to try to pick something new only for the sake of variety. I'm sure at some point we'll re repeat. Lizzie had one in mind that she's okay. So what was the one you wanted? 
Okay. So here's, here's, let me lay it out for your audience. <laughs> Um, as a longtime listener of this program, I did not realize that uh, you were supposed to pick a new comfort film that had not been discussed. Now, I will say it is down to my own naivete that I listened to so many episodes and just happened to think that, oh, no one picks the same movie. <laughs> it hasn't come up all. It's happened once or twice where people have been like, oh, can I pick that other one? But very rarely. There are a lot of fish out in the sea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, here's the thing. I, I listened to the Claire Foy episode and she picked When Harry Met Sally and I didn't think anything of it. I was like, oh, cool, great. Well, I, I'm going to do that one too. Um, and, I will, and we'll talk about it again. Uh, and we can talk about how Claire Foy loves it too. Anyways, uh, it is, it's my favorite movie of all time. So I've always known that I would speak about that film with you on this podcast. You were robbed of it. I'm and I, I was lied to and I have been robbed of it. So no, it's happening right now. What? Speak your peace, speak your love. <laughs> no, no. No, 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 no. I am going to stick to the rules wow. and I'm going to respect them. And I have picked another film. And here's the thing is I actually think it was, it, uh, I actually think it turned out for the best because when Harry Met Sally is obviously it's my favorite movie of all time, but I actually, as far as the film that I did pick, as far as what is a comfort movie, I, 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 I'd like to talk about like why I think it's a comfort movie. It's obvious why when Harry Met Sally is a comfort movie. Like, of course, it's any Nora Ephron film can be a comfort film. Um, but I, I'm actually interested and think it would be more interesting to speak about why I think this film is a comfort film to okay. me. This film was my favorite film of 2013. It is the genius uh, that is Alfonso Cuaron collaborating with his son on the script. It is starring the one and only Sandra Bullock and a very small company of actors around her. It is, of course... Gravity, Lizzie Moss, why do you take comfort in this gorgeous piece of filmmaking? Well, I, I just rewatched it this morning in anticipation of our conversation. And um, for me, it's a perfect film. I mean, so it, it's, there, there are two reasons why I find it comforting. One, it's inspiring and comforting to see a, a filmmaker make a perfect movie, in my opinion, um, and to see that that can be done. On a more, I guess, personal connection level, uh, I think it's comforting to me, this story of a woman who is in an absolutely impossible situation. You know, the film starts out with, I think it says something like it's, in, what is it? Surviving in space is impossible, or that's not exactly right. But the, the right. first thing it said, um, you can't survive in space basically. So she has this absolutely insurmountable challenge and she perseveres and it would not be a comfort film if she did not, spoiler alert, make it home at the end. Yeah. And I find the connection between her and George Clooney's character so moving. The fact that she doesn't give up in those final moments after the, the grief that she has felt through losing her child. And then she pulls it together and she gets home. I mean, it is uh, not only cinematically and visually, the sound, the editing, the VFX, everything makes it such an incredible film. But I think essentially at its heart, this, the story itself is what I find very moving and comforting. I, 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 I wasn't as good as you and rewatched the whole thing, but I did watch the, the last 10 minutes again last night, which I think is like the best like ending of a film. It's so like, you're like, I, I'm like in tears. The It's a marriage of every aspect of cinema together and like Sandra Bullock who's maybe not gotten the credit she deserved maybe in recent years she has but like back in the day was sort of like diminished as like oh she's that rom-com actor kills it with the camera just trained on her face like and you know better than anyone how difficult what she's doing is I get chills just 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 hearing what you just said I mean I don't know if you've watched any of the behind the scenes stuff on how they did it um but it's absolutely mind-blowing yeah. and you know the, the the amount of time that he spent with his team pre prepping the film and the amount of work that went into that and you know it's it's with look going back to Sandra Bullock though when you watch the behind the scenes footage you know, you realize, oh my God, she's sitting in a in a studio with all these things on her face and she's got no one to act with and she's got no one to talk to. And she's imagining all of this 
insane stuff happening around her, which just for me makes the performance a hundred times more uh, incredible. Um, And I, I, I mean, the opening is one of the best openings of a film ever made. I think it's 17 minutes. Although if you look online, some people say 12, some people say 13, I guess it depends on where you're cutting it off, but it's that 17 minute one looks like one shot, but I think it's like 120 cuts in it or something like it's, it's mind blowing. It's a, it's a good reminder. You're right. It's, it's a perfect movie. It's like 91 minutes. There's no fat on it. It is just like you're on the end. And, and frankly, I mean, it worked watching on a stupid like YouTube player for me the last 10 minutes, but like was also like that, as I recall, the great, like you hear me talk about Fury Road every other week, like one of those great cinematic experiences, like it's top five great cinematic experiences to see that in a theater. Oh my God, completely. And the thing, I love sci-fi, as I mentioned. And for me, it, you know, that another film that I almost picked was Arrival. Um, so it's an, it's, it's very, very similar in, in, yeah. in what I'm about to say, but like the, 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 the using of that genre sci-fi to Trojan horse, this deeper, this deeper message or concept or whatever you want to say, uh, you know, of her dealing with her grief there's all this incredible VFX. There's this incredible work done on the film to make it look the way that it looks. But the most important thing is that you really don't give a shit that it's you're fully locked in on her story and her performance and what is going to happen next. And that is for me, the, the true accomplishment that he pulled off. So, so as we wrap this up, you've done a lot of, I mean, us stands out as a great genre film. It's not sci-fi, but like, so have you, I don't know. Have you put the feelers out? Are you thinking like, is that, is that on the list? Like you've talked in the past. I know about like wanting to do a rom-com after all this like dark material, which of course <laughs> you must do, but it sounds like sci-fi is also very high up on the list. Very much, probably more than rom-com. Um, you know, uh, rom-coms are obviously, as you know, very, very difficult because it needs a very, very good script. And unfortunately, not made anymore. Are I mean, no longer yeah. with us. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, oh, well, <laughs> that was um, fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That That's over. <laughs> um, but sci-fi for me, yeah, more than I would, that would be the dream. I mean, Christopher Nolan is my, you know, just, I can't, I bow down. I just can't with that man. Um, you know, so doing, doing a sci-fi would definitely be an ultimate goal for me. I'd love to, at some point later when I am a more experienced director, I would love to direct a sci-fi film, Um, but it's not easy. So I'll wait a second on that. Um, But yeah, a sci-fi film would be the dream for me. Um, I don't know what to say. You had me, you know, on my back foot from the start, Lizzie, with your compliments. So hopefully I was semi-coherent, but you're you're the best. And I love talking about you. This was so easy to talk to you about film because obviously you come at it in the same way I do, just like loving all different sorts of genres, all different kinds of actors, filmmakers. Um, so hopefully this is the first of many. You're you're welcome back anytime. Um, and now I that have I know- to come back because I Please. feel like have, I just want to talk about movies with you. I feel like we have so much to talk about. We need, you know, like I think this we have. The- I, I I know we have a lot of the same tastes from listening to your podcast. So I I definitely. I, I have a lot to talk to you about. Good, 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 good. Well, handmaids, hopefully before too long, and that'll give you an excuse to come back, but you're, you're welcome anytime. And uh, everybody should check out Shining Girls, Apple TV Plus, as always, she delivers. And now she's delivering behind the camera more and more too, which is really exciting and impressive. So um, thanks for the time today. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate it. This is such a dream come true. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. (laughs) 